The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox Podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. Recent events in the United States have shown how even the most established democracies have much to learn about democracy. But my guest Winston Mono doesn't like to talk about democracy. He prefers to talk about democratization because the process never completely ends. Our conversation focuses on Africa, while it touches on topics like social media, decolonization, and of course, democracy. It concludes with a complex question. What can America learn about democracy from Africa? When I ask this question, it's not intended to embarrass Americans, but rather to look for insights from abroad. For his part, Winston believes humility is critical in a successful democracy. Different parts of the globe have different lessons, so there is always something to learn from others. But for those who believe democratization is a linear process, my question won't make any sense at all. America is widely viewed as farther along this process than any African nation. But Winston points out how technologies develop out of necessity. Some cultures leapfrog steps to develop new technologies outside the traditional sequence. Africa has even done this before. For example, Africa never experienced a Bronze Age. It went immediately into an Iron Age. So, can Africa leapfrog America at this crossroads of democratization? I have no idea. But the current crisis of democracy requires a transformation in how it is both imagined and approached. So the solutions may well come from unlikely sources. Winston Mano is a reader at the University of Westminster. He is also the principal editor of the Journal of African Media Studies. Alongside Martin Nadella, he edited the recent two-volume publication, Social Media and Elections in Africa. Today's conversation begins on the topic of social media in Africa. And this is where I thought the conversation would remain. But recent events made it impossible to avoid a wider conversation on democracy. But I'm glad the conversation progressed the way it did. You'll find Winston engaging and insightful. So... It's past time I stop talking about him and actually introduce you 
to Winston Mano. Winston Mano, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Thank you, Justin. Winston, I'm actually a little intimidated because we're going to discuss Africa. And there's actually a tendency to overgeneralize African politics, at least in my opinion, because we talk about sub-Saharan African politics as if it's one monolithic region, while in reality, I find that it's probably the most diverse of any region. There are so many countries, so many cultures, and so many languages. So because you're an expert on this, I'm hoping I can count on you to call me out if I overgeneralize. Do you think you can do that today? Yes, I agree with you that Africa, like everywhere else, is very multifaceted kind of uh, society. And it's uh, diverse countries, but they have, you know, similarities. They are, you know, that have a lot of commonalities. They have also similarities of experience, yeah. Like some of most of the countries went through colonialism and their political and economic systems were shaped in a, in a certain era and uh, they fought for independence. And this also was something that uh, united them and they created, a, for example, what is today the African Union, the union of countries that went through these struggles. And so there is a lot that unites the continent. There are also differences. Uh, like with every other <laughs> continent, yeah. But it's an exciting, vibrant continent of 1.2 billion people. I did a reading of uh, Brissette Foucault's talkative polity a few months back, talking about the Ebenezes in Uganda. And I was floored by the fact that there was not just diversity in terms of cultures within the nation of Uganda, but even linguistic differences within the same country. In the United States, we talk about it being a multi-ethnic country as if that's unique. But in reality, around the world, especially in Africa, I find that there's, there's a lot of pluralism, a lot of diversity within each individual country itself, even. It is, it's true, you know, I mean, we, we have, uh, for example, linguistic diversity, as you say, we have uh, religious diversity, we have also a very multi-linked kind of ethnic uh, kind of organizations and people slip in and out of these identities uh, in a very convivial sense. Yeah. Sometimes analysts who come from outside, they, they see things in a more straight jacket way. But uh, as Africans, this complexity is something that we kind of you know, deal with. You find people who speak up to 10 languages in some cases. And, and people who belong to uh, different religions, sometimes it's out of convenience, sometimes it's to uh, sustain relationships. It, it is what it is, <laughs> but it's a continent with a lot of vibrance, I, I would say. Winston, I want to ask you about the book. Yeah. Early in your first chapter, there is the line, politics is communication. And yeah. to be honest with you, I'm abbreviating the line. So maybe I'm taking that a little bit out of context, but I felt that it was very striking. What does this mean to you? Uh, for, for us, you know, uh, communication, because I, I'm uh, schooled uh, a lot, especially at postgraduate level in terms of media and communication aspects. So for me, societies cannot not communicate. 
for example, political formations, they thrive on communication. They have to communicate. So once you have a successful political or a struggling political communication or political context, yeah, you need communication. So communication is implicated within society, within the politics, within the political formations. So if you are going to have a political system that is of renown, that is useful to its citizens, you need to have communication at its center. So politics for us, when we were writing this book, we thought politics is communication. Politics is about communication because uh, it is right there at the center of what politicians are supposed to take uh, seriously. And looking over your essays, the way that you describe traditional media as being very controlled by the government. So how has social media changed the way Africans communicate, especially about politics, because the media environment in the past has been so one-dimensional? Yeah, thank you for asking that. Uh, It's a very very important question. Uh, First of all, let me say the uh, demarcation between new media and traditional media is one which is uh, very, for analytical reasons, because the so-called traditional media, they are also evolving and they are also taking on the kind of uh, new angles. But however, if we are to look at the new technological developments uh, like Twitter, Facebook, like uh, WhatsApp, we realize that there is another digital social media kind of element, which is uh, remarkably different from uh, the so-called traditional uh, media, analog kind of media that we used to have, yeah? So these ones are much more interactive, are much more distributed. They also are on mobile phones. They are, they are penetrating different spheres of our lives. So Africa is a uh, recipient of these technologies at a time when it's uh, forging its development. And we believe that there is something to be said about the way these technologies have been appropriated, adapted, and uh, used for specific purposes within Africa. In some cases, the usages that they have from financial, you know, mobile payments, yeah, to political systems, to health systems, yeah, like you have drones delivering medicines in Uganda, uh, in in Rwanda, in uh, different countries, you have uh, even commerce that is facilitated by these new technologies. To some extent, you have uh, usages that are driving, because I, I'm, uh, for example, with a scholar called Brian Winston, who wrote about the idea of supervening social necessities as uh, being integral to how technologies are actually developed. If there are no social needs, sometimes a technology is not adopted. So in Africa, because of the multi-faceted uh, uh, social needs, what we have is, uh, for example, a young population, which is anxious to trade, anxious to communicate, anxious to be involved, which is hungry for education. Uh, some people call them, you know, the cheetah generation, <laughs> the cheetah generation, as opposed to the hippo generation. The hippo generation is uh, like our grandfathers, our fathers, who were not very much into the new technologies. They they were happy with uh, newspapers, television, radio. 
But the cheetah generation, these are really uh, hungry for information and uh, new developments. And these are the ones who are at the center of this coincidence between new technologies and social and political developments. And so when it comes to elections, we have a, a landscape with so much happening. And, uh, and we thought this book captures some of these uh, developments. Now, Africans spend more time on social media than people in other regions or other continents. You just discussed how there is a need for different forms of media. Is this why Africans spend more time on social media than maybe Europeans or Americans do? Uh, yes, uh, I mean, uh, one of my other books is about audiences. We find again and again the idea that within Africa, it's very important, uh, maybe much more important, it's a survival thing to have information for you to get a job, for you to, you know, to, to belong, for you to, <laughs> to know your choices. Even now, as we are confronted with COVID, yeah. People are hungry for information. People are circulating in some cases uh, what is not accurate, but it's also being countered by those who have accurate information. So yes, uh, it's because of needs, health, social, political, economic needs that drive people to use these uh, mobile phones and uh, other devices that are underpin social media to actually uh, uh, maximize their opportunities in this life. You know. So, 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 as I said, you know, up to 60% of the population is very young and they are very, uh, they, are, they, are, they are very amenable to using mobile phones. And they are also very, the innovations are amazing, you know. Uh, it's not just Kenya with this Savannah, uh, Silicon Valley, uh, which is the hub of sort of innovations where we had America learn from Africa. I don't know whether you know about this geotagging which I hid I think when you had the hurricane and other kind of uh, humanitarian crisis in America, we had to borrow the geotagging software and open software that I was developed by a company called the Usha Hidi. Um, <laughs> and, and, and this is uh, very interesting because Africa has been perceived as a recipient of uh, knowledge and uh, innovation from outside. But what people don't recognize is that Africa is actually an incubator. It's, it's, it's a lot of innovation that is driven by supervening social necessities. And, and uh, we find that even the mobile payment system that we now have in Britain, they call it, uh, for example, Barclays, Barclays Bank calls it, ping it. This, is, this, is, uh, this mobile money comes from uh, East Africa where they had to find solutions about people who were unbanked, yeah? people who were outside the banking system. So they used mobile phones to actually create uh, virtual wallets. So, so, so in a way, it's uh, the luck that is driving the usages. And uh, when we come to political communication, this is also having a lot of ramifications, I would argue. It makes a lot of sense to me because it parallels things we've seen in yeah. China where China has a much better e-commerce infrastructure than the United States because they didn't have the brick and mortar infrastructure for retail. So an e-commerce platform was almost more of a necessity for them at the time and was able to just take off in a way that 
in the United States, it was going to be held back by the fact that people could still go to a store and find what they needed. It makes tons of sense to me that, that the same thing would be happening in Africa where you don't have that same traditional infrastructure of bricks and mortar retail. And there's challenges to be able to create distribution, I would yeah, imagine. Put on, you know, I, I think uh, the, the idea, the lack of the infrastructure that is not very well developed uh, was uh, is, is one that is uh, also uh, pushing these innovations. So you find people are leaping into the kind of what the industrial revolution kind of uh, usages of these technologies. Uh, and they are jumping the other stages. Uh, so in in uh, technological thinking, a lot of people feel that, you know, you have to go through, it's like, I don't know whether, you know, in development terms, there are scholars like Walter Rosto who said uh, countries will develop using these stages, yeah? So what we are finding is the leapfrogging of these stages, yeah? Whereby Africans, because of their need to satisfy the now, the need to deal with uh, needs that are that needs to be you know dealt with, are actually having to come up with solutions that uh, are sometimes also solutions used by others uh, across the world. Yeah, so so I agree with you that uh, you know the, it's not just the those without uh, banking accounts; it's uh, those without um, health insurance and things like that. People are having to come up with innovative ways to deal with the economic, social, and political challenges. Yeah. I'd like to ask about how Africans interact with different platforms on social media. I found it really interesting how Twitter is often seen as an elite platform where people who are more well-known uh, or more educated maybe are more likely to involve in Twitter. Mm-hmm. Are there differences between how different people interact with WhatsApp, Facebook, Twitter, and so and YouTube, and so on? Yes, yes, there are differences. Uh, I think uh, as everywhere else, Twitter tends to be more elite kind of uh, focused there, yeah. but you still have others, particularly activists, going there to you know to complicate the accounts of the elites. <laughs> I think my chapter in the book clearly shows this. This idea that uh, you can't have presidents, you know, glossing over their success and uh, giving promises that are false. Yeah? So you have uh, activists or alternative twists, as I want, I want to call them, people who go and challenge these accounts, people who provide alternative truths, people who question right there. So you have, uh, it's, it's in the old days, a president would just deliver a speech and go home and sleep and challenge, yeah? because they are on television and they can control who phones in or who comes on the set. But with Twitter, once a president or his spokesperson make these claims on Twitter, we have other people coming in with rival, you know, or alternative facts. And this, uh, for me, is a, a development that is really um, promising because uh, we are coming from a situation where uh, we had monolithic political voices. So now we have opportunity for other voices to be heard. Um, I'm not saying they are right, uh, but uh, they have a right to say what they have to say. And this is uh, creating uh, or challenging these politicians to be uh, a bit more careful when they go on these platforms and make claims. Yeah? 
so it's if it improves democratization, if it improves the relationship between the rulers and the root, the citizens and the uh, leaders, uh, I'm for that. Yeah. So so I, I'm I'm quite uh, chuffed that uh, Africa, whether Uganda, we have an election next week, for example. You have a, a, a leader who is really, uh, I would say, who is really attacking his uh, citizens and uh, <laughs> narrowing the sort of uh, public sphere. And you have uh, a musician who has turned an opposition politician who is, who is very brave, who is challenging him. So in the election that is coming up this January in Uganda, uh, without social media, without activists like Bobby Wine and Stella, uh, you find that uh, the story in Uganda will be uh, one-sided, it will just be the uh, one from the official sources. But uh, with social media, whatever Bobby is doing, the, even the uh, case that he's bringing against his government, uh, the international court is head. So you cannot uh, hide things anymore. In Zimbabwe, where I was born, which is my country, you have a journalist who is very brave. His name is Hopo Chingono. I don't know whether you've uh, heard about him. He uses Facebook and Twitter and WhatsApp to uh, circulate messages that challenge corruption. It highlights corruption. Says, oh, president, you want the country to run well? This is what is going wrong. Or you want to know what happened with the COVID funds? This is These are the people who stole the COVID funds. And so he's creating awareness and a lot of talk. He has been arrested, unfortunately. Uh, he's been denied bail. But uh, he is uh, very relentless. He's an award-winning journalist, very brave. They uh, stormed his house and broke into his house. But he is on Facebook and he continues again and again to say, look, this is the relationship between stealing funds and people dying in empty hospitals. Yeah. So he says, when it comes to election times, you have a leader lying to you about this, but what you need to know is this. So he, so in a way, I, I find social medias, when it's used to provide alternative information, which is not available in mainstream media within countries, being a very uh, good source, being a, a, a change that you need for our democratic systems that are still uh, formative. Uh, I, my view is that all democracies are iterative, are actually, you know, uh, work in progress, yeah? So, <laughs> including the Americans, there's no perfect democracy, nobody has arrived. And I believe that uh, what happened in America, for example, is illustrative of the fact that, you know, these these things are not natural. These things uh, need to be uh, nurtured. They need to be you know tested, and uh, uh, we need to protect what works. We need to disregard what doesn't work. Yeah, <laughs> I, I agree entirely. Democracy is always a work in progress. Uh, that was one of the big themes on last week's podcast. Honestly, when I talked about history of democracy in Germany, which is yeah. another country that facing challenges on their democracy because of the rise of the far right. Um, they have a lot of challenges where there's infiltration of far right extremists within their police and their military, a lot of crazy stuff that's happening. Fortunately, I do believe that that democracy is vibrant enough to withstand it. 
but that doesn't mean that the challenges don't exist. My head is spinning though right now. I've got so many questions based on things you had just said. One of the things I, I've read about in the past was the phenomenon of the uh, Ebemiza over in Uganda. And that was an instance where people would get together and they would have debates that would be broadcast over the radio. So there was an interplay between mass media as well as traditional forms of deliberation within African society. So that it was a new phenomena, but at the same time, it was it interacted with new forms of media. I'd like to know how does social media interact or online discussions interact with offline yeah, discussions? That's a very important question. Yeah. I, th- I think uh, in Africa, uh, when you look at specific countries uh, like Ghana, which has had re- elections recently, and on the day, I think Capitol Hill was uh, stormed by rioters. In, in Ghana, you also had the standoff within the parliament, yeah? where two, the opposition and the ruling party almost uh, came to blows. Yeah? Um, so so, so uh, what I'm saying here is that throughout Africa, when you look at the evolving democratic systems, these are very much taken from the traditional, the offline, and often they are accompanied by rallies, the political rally that uh, Donald Trump loved so much. It's a key element in Africa. Uh, leaders want to go to villages. Leaders want to go to urban centers and gather people and talk to them directly face-to-face. This is building on uh, traditional patterns where a leader would meet almost in the Greek uh, agora kind of style, face-to-face with people and answer questions, shake hands and you know hug and all that. So you have uh, these um, face-to-face offline kind of uh, meetings, rally, political rallies, and all parties, they have structures that are laid out throughout the country. Like in Zimbabwe, where I come from, the ruling party, which is from the liberation war, build these structures, first as protest kind of structures against uh, the colonial regime. And then uh, they integrated that into the ruling uh, party network. So when you are in opposition, it's very difficult to dislodge them because uh, these traditional offline kind of networks can be very strong. It can be bonds if your father was, say, in the Republican in uh, Zimbabwe, if your father was a member of the ZANU-PF ruling party, you are likely to be a member of that party as well. So you have uh, a legacy that you have that is built in the modern sense, but based on uh, alliances and networks that have been built first to protest against colonialism, but also this could be, you know, ties on, uh, you know, ethnic, religious and other that are brought into the political area. So what you have there are very strong bonds offline, which then uh, when you come to the online world, to the social media, some of it matches that, but some of it could just be echo chambers, yeah, whereby you speak to the people from your own group, yeah. Um, but in some cases, it's cross-group uh, kind of communication. So, so, so in a way, to answer your question, yes, Africa does not only have these social media kind of political communication spaces. These work alongside the, the, the kind of offline, the very strong bonds that are historically established. 
in the different African contexts. And uh, each political party has a history. Uh, the new parties, sometimes they capture imagination and uh, promise things. Sometimes they are spontaneous. We have seen, for example, uh, in protests say in Sudan or in uh, Zambia uh, or in South Africa, uh, the economic freedom fighters, yeah, with their red berets, you know, they, 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 they strike a very kind of uh, <laughs> uh, different uh, uh, outlook from, say, the ANC of Nelson Mandela which is with its uh, green and yellow colors, it's belonging to a certain past. And to have a historic figure like Mandela brings some kind of, you know, common uniting element. So there are political rallies, the things that they value, uh, the struggles that they share are different, say, from the economic freedom fighters, which is a splinter group from them, which is emphasizing more on the economic uh, redistribution, the economic justice, so the... So, 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 so Africa is, uh, yeah, home to these offline kind of associations, which also when they are now replicated online, in some cases they match what is happening offline, but what is happening offline is normally much more nuanced, much more complex. Yeah? And, and this is what makes or destroys political parties. Yeah? So have younger generations solidified these partisan affiliations or are they disrupting them? I, I would say the young generations are it's obedient, they're disruptive, they are, they are adventurous, they are pushing boundaries. And uh, for them, there is nothing sacrosanct. They, they want truth, they want uh, immediacy, they want uh, sometimes, I'm also thinking the democratic systems that we have in Africa, uh, and it's a point made by other people, for example, the editor of the New African, Bafo Angoma, he said that perhaps the issue of having four-year or five-year political terms as a measure for achievements of politics in Africa is a problem. You know, perhaps we should look at you know uh, having longer terms, seven years, ten years, <laughs> so that political parties can have time to deliver. So, with the younger generation in Africa, the cheetah generation, they want things to move fast. Yeah. And so if a government is elected into power, after five years, they haven't delivered. People are, are impatient. They want the jobs. They want to see the progress. They want to see the spaghetti roads, as they say. You know, They want to see uh, a, a lot of industry taking place. So the promises that have been given, I would argue, have not been delivered within the five-year terms. And this is something that is a problem in Africa because... To raise funding, you need more than five years sometimes. And to deliver on projects, you need more than five years. But uh, if we have leaders for longer, the dilemma is that they may just sit on these promises. So it's, so it's a conundrum. It's something that uh, does not have an easy kind of solution. But something to think about that uh, these uh, five-year terms, why, do we, why are we stuck with them? But if we... Say the Chinese, for example, they have seven-year uh, political changes. Yeah, but uh, in, in Africa we have four years or five years uh, refreshing of systems, and we can say that after out of the five years, the last two years are used to campaign for the next five years. Yeah, <laughs> so Africa is always in perpetual election mode. Yeah, so some of these articles are showing the uh, the, the chapters in the book, two books. 
showing the women, the youth, and the activists and uh, different groups challenging the status quo and trying to get um, concessions, trying to have their voices heard. But the continent is very much uh, in uh, perpetual election mode and the politicians, the politics is not delivering, I would say. The reasons are, are many, corruption, yes, but also it's unfair terms of trade that have been developed during the colonial era. So what we have therefore say with the Francophone African countries, they still pay some taxes to France, they still trade predominantly with France. They still are very much, you know, I, I would, I would, for lack of a better word, they're still very much in the ambit of uh, the French political system. So what you need to have is proper decolonization, whereby the sovereignty of these countries needs to be established beyond doubt that they need to have fair terms of trade. If their people are producing certain commodities, they need to have value addition within those countries rather than uh, export economies that are not delivering for anyone, for the farmers, for the locals. So value addition, whether it's gold, whether it's farming products, whether it's diamonds, it's very important. You cannot have Africa, which is resource rich, but poor. How does social media bring some of those issues of decolonization to the forefront? in a way that traditional media didn't in the past. Can you give some examples? Uh, it's a very important question. Uh, when you look at uh, social media, a lot of groups, for example, circulate messages that raise awareness about coloniality. Uh, they raise awareness about what people need to do in order to get out of coloniality. But uh, they also recognize that you, you cannot throw away the baby with the bathwater, yeah? decolonization is easier said than done. What do you, D means out, what do you take out, yeah? What do you keep? <laughs> How do you strike the necessary path towards, you know, political economic development that is not controlled from outside, yeah? Uh, so, so it requires awareness and knowledge from the leaders. It requires uh, knowledge and awareness from the citizens. You, you find, uh, Talking about France, you find that Rwanda, for example, decided to cut ties with France. Part of it was to protest that the way the French reacted to the killings in 1994. But what they did was to then use English rather than French. They said, we want to, uh, we don't want to be part of this uh, <laughs> French, uh, you know, arrangement anymore. Yeah. Uh, Rwanda is doing better now. It's just this uh, strong leader with, uh, you know, delivering on uh, economic and, and uh, social program programs. I, did, I left out political because there are people who challenge his political aspects. But Rwanda is much more stable. It's a society which is cleaner, which is delivering. A lot of people are talking of Rwanda at the moment as the, the new kind of point of growth, economic growth in Africa. There's some kind of renaissance. So part of it, what I'm saying, is it because they broke away with the French? <laughs> but uh, part of it is that uh, uh, perhaps they questioned the relationship and they restructured uh, how they relate to France. And this helped them to, to create something that works for both them and the French, yeah? rather than to just take it for granted, as most African countries seem to have done. Yeah? So does decolonization in the way that you're describing it, mm. does it, does it depend more on the 
African nations asserting themselves, or does it depend on the European nations or the former colonial powers making reforms that that hold them back, that hold back Africa? It's an excellent question. Decolonization, uh, it involves the former colonized colonial powers losing certain privileges. It involves dismantling certain relationships. Some of the things cannot be just uh, reformed and revamped. Some have to be done away with. Um, I, I laugh in some African countries, you have judges wearing, you know, these uh, white wigs, yeah. Uh, you have, uh, you know, colonial dress still in place, yeah. Uh, these, these colonial traditions were introduced during uh, uh, colonialism and there's no reason that they continue. You have judicial systems and uh, economic systems that were framed to save the colonial kind of purpose, yeah. So what is needed is a rethink by locals within African countries about what works, a rethink about also the, the benefiting uh, former colonial powers of uh, how to create a just society which just does not just you know, benefit them. I talked about the real need to add value to African uh, commodities. It's a very important need it secures both the, you know, the interests of uh, the, the locals and also the countries that trade with Africa. I also talk, uh, talked about the proper opportunities to trade. But decolonization, it also works in many other areas, like the area of education, for example. The colonial era was to produce a certain kind of African who could just maybe was literate, who could count things and would be useful for the colonial economy. And this was the, uh, the way education was structured. Yeah. So the education that we have needs to be fit for purpose, needs to be revisited. The books that people read, the theories, the practical elements, and the purpose of education, the real rationale for education need to be debated within the local context, uh, away from the, the kind of legacy of colonialism which was to create unthinking Africans, people who are just in the service of coloniality. So, so much of it is schools that have remained intact, just in, uh, you know, <laughs> as they were in the colonial era. The syllabus that remained intact as they were in the colonial era. There's no reason for that, you know. We are in independent Africa 60 years after, uh, more than 60 years after independence, yeah. So there's need now to to chart a path that is useful for Africa. The area of coloniality needs to be tackled so that the countries can deliver on, on the promises that they make at elections, on the promises that uh, they, they, they make uh, to their citizens. Yeah. It's, 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 it's only fair to do that, yeah. The little that I've read about African history, especially before 1800, always fascinates me how deep and rich it is and how important it was to world history because oftentimes it's it's easy to look at different regions of the world and say well that history is important but only within this small subfield african history has a long reach that impacts the rest of world history that impacts uh traditional european history it's in ways it, it was part of the old world Yes, yes, uh, you're quite right, you know, I mean, Africa is not, it, it has always been integrated, you know, 
from uh, the wars, uh, from the, you know, the trade, from uh, in the, the religious histories. Yeah, Africa has always been at the center. And when we, when you look at Egypt, for example, with its long history, its pyramids, you know, people are fascinated by that. They ask questions: How did this come about? When you go to Southern Africa, they discovered two hundred thousand year old kind of settlements. Yeah, they are much older than <laughs> the Egyptian. Uh, and people were asking questions: how, how then? What, what are we supposed to make of this? Yeah, under colonialism, people dis, uh, denied that the Benin statues, lovely statues in gold, yeah, which were five thousand years old, they were made by locals. Yeah, they said, oh, no, 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 these are. <laughs> and some of them were, you know, brought to London and other cities across Europe yeah, as part of this. Uh, the, this was a, a very orchestrated thing of denying Africans history to say, look, history starts with us, the colonial officials. History that happened never happened. Yeah? These ruins in Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe ruins, you never build them. Victoria Falls, well, we call it Victoria Falls. We don't want to use the local name. Yeah? It's discovered by... David Livingstone on behalf of Queen Victoria. So, so, so you have these uh, namings, this rewriting of history, which was systematic at that time. It was a time of after the Berlin Conference in 1884, Africa was puzzled out like a you know, godfather-like um, with uh, different countries taking chunks of the continent. Yeah. And uh, a lot of war, like you know, in Belgium, Congo, it was terrible. You know, people who wouldn't bring rubber, you know, uh, they, they were, they, they, their hands were chopped, yeah. So, so what you have, therefore, uh, is an Africa which uh, has been at the receiving end. In the Congo, you produce uh, uh, the ingredients for mobile phones, the most important, you know, <laughs> element for the digital revolution. But what you have does not cascade into uh, improved lives for locals, yeah. Why is this uh, the situation? because of the structures created in the colonial era. So when we talk about decoloniality, we talk there's a real material dimension to say, look, we need to undo these you know, processes of underdevelopment. A strong Africa, a well-developed Africa is an ally. It's a, it's a major you know, contributor to world uh, you know, peace, world progress. And it's, it's only fair for the citizens that are in Africa today also experience some of these uh, benefits. So democracy in Africa has historically been a challenge. Are you more of an optimist or are you more of a pessimist about the proliferation of democracy throughout Africa? I, I, am, I am optimistic, but I'm also uh, worried that democracy has become a mantra, has become, uh, you know, something that people are doing uh, as, as, a, as, a, as a way to tick boxes, yeah, as if they mean it. Uh, I think uh, democracy by its nature comes with certain demands. And uh, in a way, when you look at uh, countries with stronger constitutions like South Africa, for example, this is uh, very important. You know, it becomes a contract between citizens and the leaders. So when the leaders don't deliver, people look at the constitution and say, no, hold on, you are not delivering. So when you have democracy, which is uh, founded on key kind of pillars, like the constitution media that uh, works, then uh, you are likely to have you know, a more progressive kind of uh, society. But in other contexts, uh, you also have problems because the capitalist 
order that we have in the world sponsors uh, fights that are endless. So when you go to the Congo, for example, there are numerous wars, there are numerous groups that are at each other's uh, end. Yeah. Uh, why is this the case? Because Congo is resource rich. There are some people who don't want to go through the front door. They want to, you know, get resources via the back door. So, so I'm I'm uh, not optimistic in situations where democracy is hijacked, particularly by greedy groups, local groups aligned to uh, to international groups. Yeah. Uh, we've seen that in Angola, for example, with Savimbi, who was fighting for a long time and then discarded. Now Angola has some semblance of peace and development is taking place. Uh, we've seen that uh, when Zimbabwe discovered diamonds, locals were you know, uprooted. Zimbabwe had um, potentially the second largest discoveries of diamonds in the last 10 years. But all that has fizzled out in the there's been a lot of mining. Now it's an environmental disaster. People no longer know what happened to the diamonds. Yeah? <laughs> and then you find like Sierra Leone, you find other countries like Nigeria, oil rich, uh, sixth largest producer of oil in the world. But there have been fights in the Delta region where this oil is concentrated. Other groups uh, like Boko Haram in uh, Nigeria, they, nobody knows where they get arms, but they are keep hacking everyone. Uh, the reasons why they hack everyone, they keep changing. Sometimes it's because they don't want Western modernity. Sometimes they don't want the government in power. So, so, so when you have uh, these groups that are armed by international uh, you know, groups, then uh, it's a problem, I think. So democracy is sometimes considered a Western phenomenon. Samuel Huntington describes it as such and is his uh, classic work, The Clash of Civilizations. Does decolonization mean a reimagination of democracy for Africa? Okay, I have sympathy with uh, Samuel Huntington's uh, characterization, but what I want to say is that uh, democracy is, 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 is a word that describes what everybody wants, you know, fairness and justice, yeah. So when you begin to put the word democracy and you leave out the values that are there, you, you can easily mistake it for just being a Western thing. It's not Western to like fairness. It's not Western to want justice. So democracy, when it's supported by institutions, yes, it has been perfected in uh, some Western uh, you know, uh, societies much more. But but it is an important element because when we talk about democracy, are we talking of one democracy? Are there different versions of democracy? Uh, when you talk to the Chinese, for example, with their elections into the Politburo and all that, they think that theirs is also a democracy. It's a different kind of democracy and from the Western one. So when we are talking about democracy, I think this short end, this idea of just looking at it as uh, one thing, is not helpful. I, I, my view is that democracy has different elements and it's iterative. It's something that is, uh, that is not complete. It's something that we all build. It's something that citizens everywhere, they require if they are given an opportunity to participate. So it's, it's a participatory political system which uh, should be 
should, should benefit from some of these institutions that are well defined in the so-called Western democracy. But uh, it's something that uh, I think uh, is required for every society. One of the most important books that I read in 2020 was written by uh, David Stasavage. It's called The Decline and Rise of Democracy. And it's about how traditions of democracy were very prevalent throughout early societies and throughout the, the world within early native cultures, within the United, within Americas, within different parts of Africa, within early parts of Europe. And it rings true the exact thing that you just said, that the principles of democracy are not necessarily Western the ideas of justice, the ideas of inclusion. Um, I tend to define democracy as a politics of inclusion and authoritarianism as a politics of exclusion. It allows us to, to think of things that are traditionally democratic, a democratic regime as sometimes having authoritarian tendencies, because if you have elections, but they're designed to exclude people from the political process, that's not democratic. And yeah. At the same time, there's elements of democracy within authoritarian regimes where they include people and and start to include different opinions. Obviously, there's a spectrum. Uh, the more inclusive you can get, the more democratic it is. So I, I can see what you what you mean by that. I can also imagine a scenario where different parts of the world can integrate parts of their culture to look at democracy in different ways so that the, the Western democratic, the package that was designed is, is different in different parts of the world as, as we begin to think more about democratic government. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's not liberal democracy in different parts of the world. It just means that it yeah. elections might be different, different institutions may be seen differently over time. No, I, I think I think uh, what what is at stake is uh, you know the idea of representative democracy, and and my view is that democracy is not something that travels like a can of tuna fish here, uh, from the west to the rest here. What what is what we should have you know is consideration of a representative democracy, whereby you know the relationship between rulers and the ruled is something that is governed by principles that are by transparency, by accountability, by participation. And once you have you know, an operationalization of that within constitutions, then you can have the media you know, chip in to try to act as you know, a fourth state to try and, you know, and uh, make sure that there is fair play within the system. At the moment, my problem is that uh, the kind of versions of democracy, whether in the West or in the rest, as they say, uh, there is a lot of staging of democracy. Democracy is under, is under construction uh, with some people manipulating it and uh, with uh, these new technologies being used to create, you know, um, to create and manufacture consent, to hide ideologies, to uh, keep people, you know, focused on wrong things, yeah. So what we need to have is to be vigilant and to always uh, have a view of democracy as something that is under construction, uh, to be cynical in a healthy way about our leaders, 
and to keep them on their laurels. Once we elect them, they should not act like the kings of the past. They should be accountable according to you know what they were elected to do. And uh, they should not be big-headed. They should not be above the law. They should be accountable. <laughs> and once you have the templates right, then you can uh, claim that we are on the, the process of democracy. I like democratization rather than just democracy. Democratization as a process is very uh, positive. And I'm optimistic once we put the finger on democratization. Well, Robert Dahl talked about waves of democracy very differently than Samuel Huntington did. He talked about waves being processes of democratization that were deeper senses of what democracy would be. And he posited a sense of a third wave. And Samuel Huntington obviously is known for the third wave, but it's a proliferation of democracy in Huntington's view. Dahl thought the third wave was supposed to be an even deeper sense of what democracy was within Europe, within the United States, and who knows, maybe Africa leapfrogs the West in terms of uh, democratic governance down the road and finds that deeper sense. But it's the idea that democracy, there's no end point. There's, it's like trying to approach a limit where you can never fully touch it. You're always trying to get closer. Yeah, I I think uh, the acceptance that democracy is work in progress is something that should be humbling, something that should make us more convivial, to know that there is something you can add to it to make it better, to enhance it. I mean, even as individuals, we are always borrowing from others. Uh, We are always, you know, having, uh, you know, even when we eat, there's space for, you know, for, for puddings, the space for something else, the dessert. So what I'm saying here is that the, uh, it's, it's a theory advanced by a good friend of mine, an anthropologist called Francis Nyamjo. He talks about incompleteness. Incompleteness, not as a lack, but also as a, uh, an indication of possibilities. So when we talk of democracy as something that is under construction, as something that is becoming we are likely to think of it in much more progressive ways as something that, that can be better there. The idea that uh, we looked, for example, at uh, America as a complete democracy, as people we have arrived there, yeah, is now coming to hate us because we always imagine that this is the paragon of democracy, this is complete democracy. There's no complete democracy. Uh, it's, it's, it's still in the making, it's still a lot of things. They can learn a lot from the South African constitution, which is much more democratic than the American constitution, I would argue. Look at the South African constitution when it was done, perfect. <laughs> so there is a lot of learning from each other that needs to be happened in the world. And that can only happen with humility, with people accepting that, you know, we are all swimming, nobody's at the banks. <laughs> that that's a perfect transition to the final question I wanted to ask you. The United States is obviously undergoing a lot of turmoil, to put it mildly right now. What can the United States learn uh, about democracy from Africa? Uh, I, I think uh, the U.S. can learn that you, know, you can never overtrust leaders. Yeah? You should always you know, uh, have media fact check what leaders say. There's a lot of wishes and claims that uh, leaders make. And some of these can be very seductive in the media, but 
it's important that uh, you had media that was really on uh, the outgoing regime, uh, checking the effects and challenging. And you also had social media banning them and you know suspending accounts. In, in Africa, this is quite routine. This is where we are fighting for democracy. We, have, we are used to this, you know, from the colonial era claims that were made about the citizens were not always correct. In the post-colonial era, claims that were made about, uh, that are made by, about citizens are not always correct. So Africa has been in an engaged mode, very cynical, very questioning of the leaders. And America can, I think they had uh, relegated this idea of questioning their leaders, taking things for granted a bit. I think we need, all need to question leaders. We need to bring more accountability, to bring more participation and make it fair for everyone. But uh, democracy, when it survives tests, it's much more stronger and out of crisis can come something new and better. I think that's a good place to end. Thank you so much, Winston Mano. This has been fascinating. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. (laughs) Bye-bye. The Democracy Paradox podcast is possible because of the support of many people and institutions. I want to thank the many scholars who contributed to social media and elections in Africa. I want to thank Apes of the State for allowing me to use their music. You can find them on Spotify or their Bandcamp page. As always, I would not be able to produce these podcasts without the support of my wife, Julie, and the good behavior of my kids. The home of the Democracy Paradox podcast is at democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.